This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show to get a shout-out at the beginning, or just support it in general, go over to our Patreon at Demystified Podcast, or just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. And now, on with the show. Antelope, Oregon, 1983. A convoy of cars drives down a dusty road towards what used to be called the Big Muddy Ranch. Big is an understatement. The property is itself over 64,000 acres. Muddy is also an understatement. This is wild country. Where the settlers went to roam the wide open spaces, and if you go up North Oregon, then wide open space is what you get. Forests and mountains stretch for miles in every direction. Rivers, plains, and valleys as far as the eye can see. Daniel DeRoe is a county planner for Wasco County, based out of the county capital of the Dallas, not to be confused with Dallas, Texas. He's been down to the ranch a few times, but over the past few years, the site has changed dramatically. You see, it all started when the first of the Red People arrived in Antelope, a town in name alone, with fewer than 60 people at most populated by old farmers. Way out in the wilds of Oregon, the arrival of the Red People sparked much debate and discussion. They were missionaries of a relatively new religion, named for its founder, the Rajneeshis, followers of the Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and they had decided that mounting pressures back in India with government scrutiny of their sect, as well as a massively expanding and increasingly global following, merited putting plans into action. The plan was to build a commune, a place where they could demonstrate that through the teachings of Bhagwan, a utopia on earth could be realized. Some of you might, given our last two episodes, think that you can see where this is headed, but the Rajneeshis weren't a doomsday cult. In fact, they were non-violent. Were non-violent, were being the operative word, because that didn't last forever. The people of Antelope weren't best pleased with outsiders moving in. They were conservative Christians, and this new age hippie religion from India sat poorly with them with its free love and bohemianism. It wasn't commie, though. Whilst all did work for the commune, you were paid a wage and capitalist excesses were encouraged by the Bhagwan. You see, the Bhagwan saw the West as too materialist, but the East as too spiritualist. So he wanted to create a utopia based in Indian and East Asian spiritual centering, but with Western technology, luxury, and pleasure. The people of Antelope weren't pleased when a handful of Rajneeshis showed up. When 10,000 of them moved into the Big Money Ranch and hastily built a city, with promises of more to come, tensions rose. You see, our previous two episodes have not sat idly in history, and the townsfolk, fresh with memories of mass suicides, ritual murders, and assassinations, begin to arm themselves for fear of the cult. When an attack was carried out on the Rajneeshis, interestingly by an unrelated group of Islamist terrorists as it turns out, they had assumed that it was the people of Oregon who wanted them dead. If one had seen the stance of the people of Antelope, one might also have assumed that. But this was the boiling point. Tensions had been rising between Antelope and the commune, now called Rajneeshpuram, for years. Between attempting a financial takeover of the town of Antelope, fixing local elections by bussing in vagrants from Texas, and other local legal chicanery, the Rajneeshis were keen to show that they wouldn't be bossed around. They armed themselves. Ma Sheila, the Bhagwan's second-in-command, became his commander-in-chief. She established an armed militia of hundreds of Rajneeshis, used their fortunes to purchase top-of-the-line modern weapons. Shooting drills were carried out, and the Rajneeshis were armed to the teeth. This is the scene in which we lay ourselves when Dan Duro is driving down the road. He has a police escort, because he's stymieing the ambitions of the Rajneeshis, which was the greater or lesser extent of his job as a county planner, has not gone unnoticed. 
They reach a roadblock set up expertly. Hands on holsters, an ambush is expected, but none forthcoming. The Rajneeshis wave them through. From a car, Sheila watches over the scene, relaying events on a two-way radio. A new set of buildings has gone up, and Darrow needs to see if they're up to code. A formality, really, but all in the departments of state of Oregon are keen to get a glimpse behind the palisade of the strange world of Rajneeshpuram. The cars drive up to the parking lot, and Darrow gets out. More men with guns, in cars, walking around menacingly. The tension in the air is palpable. After what's happened since our first story back began in 1969, Darrow looks around to the sheriff and his deputies. What would happen? if it came down to it. He walks over to the one of the buildings. They're quick construction huts, essentially like the kind you'd find as a foreman's office at a construction site. He asks to be let into the building. The Rajneeshi in charge equivocates. It's just a janitorial supply car, but even if I did have the key, it wouldn't be worth your time. You'd have to wait here for me to go get the key, and yada yada yada. Darrow looks around at the glares of the armed men burning into the back of him, and he decides not to press the issue. He does a general inspection and leaves as soon as he can. Night falls on the way back and he thinks to himself about what could have been. And with what happened next, it's realistic to suppose that if he had tried to get inside that building, he wouldn't have left Rajneeshpuram alive. What was inside was a biological weapons lab, a breeding ground for salmonella to be used on the people of Wasco County and where experiments were being done to create even more dangerous pathogens for use against the enemies of Rajneesh. The eventual 1984 bioterror attack by the Rajneeshis was the first of the United States in the century. We know this because between that day and now, assassination attempts on US government officials, bioterror attacks, massive embezzlement and fraud scandals, attempts to bribe US officials and re-elections, and the biggest case of immigration fraud in the United States' history, all transpired and were uncovered. And yet the cult exists today, with thousands of thousands of members all around the globe, rebranded and repackaged with none of that nasty attempted murder, child sexual abuse or biological warfare. Unlike our previous two episodes, they somehow bounced back from what should have been a total collapse, and have done everything to recover their image in the modern world. On today's episode of Demystified's third season, we look into the facts and the fiction behind the city of Rajneeshpuram and the figure of the Bhagwan. Today's cult is different from the ones of the previous two episodes, insofar as, as we mentioned just now, it still exists. Osho International is the continuation of what was the Rajneeshi movement, still giving credence to the teachings of the Bhagwan, known later in his life as Osho, while distancing itself from all of the nastiness of the 1980s. But as with all the other stories, we do have to go back to the beginning with this one. Context is important, and there are several key players in this story. Chandra Mohan Jain was born in 1931, near what is today Bhopal, India infamous for the crime against humanity perpetrated by Union Carbide. By his own account, one of the biggest influences on his young life was being allowed to live with his grandparents, who gave him far more personal freedom than his parents ever did. When his grandfather died when he was seven, he gained, wait for it, an obsession with death. Not the same as the other two, but interesting how frequently that shows up in our cult stories. But unlike the other two, as will become important later, Rajneesh's cult wasn't really a doomsday cult, or at least not to the extent of the others this season. In his school years, he became a skilled orator, 
Debate club paid off, and he often found himself clashing verbally with students and teachers alike. His main criticism was the traditional religious structures in India. His parents had been Jains, a Vedic religion related to Hinduism and Buddhism, but definitely not the same. This criticism of traditional religion would cause problems further down the line, but for the time being, it sparked an interest in things like yoga, controlled breathing exercises, meditation, and hypnosis. He also joined up with two rather different political organizations, the Indian National Army and the Rastriya Swavayam Sek Sang, right-wing groups, although he was also interested in socialism. No small wonder, then, that A, he had trouble listening to orders and following discipline, and B, he never felt comfortable committing to any one single ideology. He attended colleges in the town of Jabalpur, but was transferred between them and eventually not made to attend classes because he was almost combative in his arguments and aggressively disruptive of lessons. You know that one swat who continually interrupts the teacher? Imagine that, except he just won't shut up. Times a thousand. Rajneesh later said he became spiritually enlightened on the 21st of March 1953, when he was 21 years old, in a mystical experience while sitting under a tree in the Bhavantaral Garden in Jabalpur. The details of that experience he would keep to himself, and he continued his studies regardless, graduating with a bachelor's in philosophy, later upgraded to a master's with distinction. He taught at a small-time college, but was asked to leave because the vice-principal thought him a danger to the moral character of the students. But he climbed up, landed a better job, became a professor of philosophy at Jabalpur University in 1960. Here's where the controversy kicks off in a major way, and we'll have a number of these plateaus and increases as we go through. He started doing independent lectures under the name Rajneesh, a nickname from childhood apparently meaning Lord of the Night in Hindi, Raj, Lord, Nish, Night. At these lectures, he criticized socialism and Gandhi specifically, describing his masochism as a worship of poverty. According to Rajneesh, socialism couldn't solve problems of poverty as it only made people idolize being poor. He also criticized India's traditional religions as being empty, entirely consisting of pointless ritual with no actual substance. Indeed, Rajneesh was pro-capitalism, a pro-capitalist cultist, I know, right? He said that Western science and technology, as well as capitalist values, were needed to modernize India and eliminate poverty. This, by the by, made him very popular with local business leaders and industrialists who would hold spiritual consultations with him, for a nominal fee, of course. The basic idea, according to this in his later writings, was such. India and the East were too spiritual, obsessed with ancient rituals devoid of modern meaning. This is why, he said, they were so poor and backwards. But the West was too far the other way. They used technology and capitalism to advance themselves, bringing prosperity, but without any spiritual centre, their lives were also empty. Bhagwan says the big thing about life is you must enjoy it. Why live in poverty for spiritual reasons if it makes you miserable? If having stuff makes you happy, go get your stuff. But don't pursue the stuff to the extent that it makes you unhappy either. Kind of Aristotelian, in a way, a golden mean of a virtue between two vices. Modernity is good, says Rajneesh, because it allows you to help and bring prosperity to more people more easily. Why ignore things that make life demonstrably better for superstitious purposes? Then again, you also need directed modernity. Use the tractor to plough the field quickly and feed the hungry so that everyone is happy. After clashes with established religious elites in India, he stopped lecturing in 1966, but he kept speaking and touring. His embracing of free sex also made him an enemy of established conservatives. In the 70s, he upped the ante. He fully adopted a new name, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, or the Bhagwan. Bhagwan means blessed one, Sri means sir, like an honorific, and Rajneesh was his nom de plume, so basically the blessed one, Mr. Rajneesh. 
He set up a shop in Mumbai and recruited the first of his sannyasins, also called neo-sannyasins, his gurus. These disciples would have leave to teach the lessons of Rajneesh, but instead of being ascetics like most gurus at the time, they were encouraged to indulge in what was termed a celebratory lifestyle defined by excess. It's here that two important people enter the story. The first is Lakshmi Takasi Kurova, one of the first disciples and his first secretary. She's important because as the Bhagwan grew in influence, he started withdrawing from doing lectures and speaking himself, deferring to doing private lectures, appointed speeches and meditations, or speaking through his secretary. The second is a woman called Ma Anand Sheila. I can't pin down exactly when she first met Rajneesh. In her interview, she implied it was as a child in India, as her father was interested in his teachings. Other sources say it was when she moved to the US from India in the age of 18 and returned at the age of 23 in 1972 to pursue her own enlightenment. Whatever the case, though, Sheila started to become a grey eminence in the Rajneeshi movement, working behind the scenes, accruing friends and followers of her own, and gaining the trust of the Bhagwan. The biggest change came in 1974 with the move from Mumbai to Pune. The climate in Mumbai disagreed with Rajneesh and he took ill often, so a change was needed. In Pune, the group founded their first major ashram, or commune. Now, the Pune ashram had several advantages. First off, the property was installed with a sound studio, which allowed audio and video recordings of the Bhagwan speeches to be sent around the world. This massively increased the number of Western followers, which in turn brought in massive amounts of money. Secondly, the Human Potential Movement, a countercultural group, started extolling the therapeutic properties of meditation at the Pune Ashram, lending credibility to the Rajneesh and again increasing his outreach and following. And here the controversy ramps up again. The atmosphere of the Pune Ashram, which to this day is still run by Osho International, was said to be madhouse. All day you'd participate in listening to speeches from the Bhagwan, dynamic meditation, which involved dancing, shouting, crying, intense emotional outpouring, as well as more intense activities. The dynamic part was important, said the sannyasins. It was important to let all your emotion out, whatever that emotion was. The so-called encounter groups held therapies that involved what were essentially group orgies and opened fighting between mediators. One account from Richard Price, a contemporary spiritualist who wanted to see what all the fuss was about, alleged that he'd been left with a broken arm after he was locked in a room and beaten with wooden weapons for eight hours as part of an extreme dynamic meditation intended to allow that full release of anger, fear, hatred, and negativity. By 1979, the use of violence and dynamic meditation was barred by the Rajneeshis. Doesn't mean it didn't still happen. The orgies continued, though. The sannyasins who were promoted were hand-selected for their dedication to the cause, their belief in the Bhagwan, and their abrasive personalities, designed to provoke an intense emotional reaction from those below them. There were, of course, allegations of drug use, mostly among the western sannyasins, and it was alleged that much of the finance of the ashram came from prostitution and drug smuggling. The latest statements of members indicate that whilst the Bhagwan wasn't involved in these activities, he allowed them to occur under his watch. This is one of the big issues with the Rajneeshi movement that becomes much more important later. As Rajneesh himself steps back for various reasons, his sannyasins fill the vacuum, and since they have sole access to actually talking with him, their word is his word, essentially. This also makes it hard to distinguish how much the Bhagwan knew about what was going on under his banner and how much he didn't know, or pretended not to know. In 1980, things changed again. By now, the Pune Ashram was dangerously overcrowded, as followers from all over the world had flocked to join the movement. An attempt on Rajneesh's life by a Hindu extremist prompted a desire to leave India for a while. 
On top of this, the political landscape was shifting. Despite associations with Indira Gandhi, she refused to come to bat for Rajneesh anymore, and plans to expand the commune were blocked. Moreover, the ashram's tax-exempt status was retroactively revoked, leading to a bill of 5 million US dollars being plonked on the desk of the Bhagwan. But by 1981, the ashram had 30,000 visitors a year. Jim Jones could only muster a hair off of 1,000 at Jonestown, chump change compared to what Rajneesh was pulling in, and that's only counting those followers who actually visited the Pune ashram. Globally, the number was thought to be almost in the millions. On the 10th of April, the Bhagwan entered a self-imposed vow of silence whilst in public. After 15 years of speaking, he entered a three-and-a-half-year silent period, which would massively increase the power and influence of the sannyasins. At the same time, Ma Anand Sheila took over as secretary for the Bhagwan. In effect, she now had say over what was and what was not official doctrine. She was one of the privileged few to whom Rajneesh actually spoke, and thus much of the day-to-day running of the commune was left to her. This is a lesson we learn from history, by the way. Never dismiss a secretary. You want an example of that? Go ask Stalin. Stalin's position under Lenin was general secretary, meant to be a junior position, glorified postman. But Stalin realized that being in control of meeting notes and information and who could attend which meetings, who knew what a day a crucial vote would take place, etc., etc., meant that he controlled everything. And he would use that position of secretary to take over the Politburo and become the leader of the Soviet Union. Sheila did pretty much the same thing, in a slightly different way, of course, but agenda setting is a hell of a power to hold, and when you chair the meeting, you get to decide what gets talked about and who gets to talk about it. Then, the move to America. The moment you've all been waiting for, because this is where shit hits the fan and we turn the dial up to 11. For several reasons, fleeing the Indian IRS, trying to avoid being assassinated, and health purposes due to a prolapsed spinal disc, the Bhagwan wants to go to America and set up shop there. You see, the United States has the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause of which protects people who practice their religion from government intervention. It's a big part of the reason as to why a lot of these cults don't get tackled until it's far too late, the American ones anyway. Because unless you can prove that they're doing illegal things, they can do whatever they want. Religious freedom. So Rajneesh goes to America under the pretense of seeking medical help on a tourist visa. This is important to mention because in three years' time, an immigration fraud charge comes up as he didn't state the reason he was coming to the US or how long he'd be staying there. You see, a tourist visa doesn't quite cut it in the end. Sheila, through her American husband, purchased a $5.75 million ranch in Oregon called the Big Muddy Ranch. 64,000 acres of untamed wilderness. Seriously, go look at pictures of Wasco and Jefferson County, Oregon, as to two places where the ranch would be. It's beautiful and wild and very much the place for a commune to set up shop. Hundreds of miles from civilization, plenty of room to stretch your legs, and unlike Jonestown, no risk of contracting dengue in a jungle. The ranch is renamed Rancho Rajneesh, and hundreds of Rajneeshis have flown out to the small town of Antelope to start setting up shop. Antelope was the nearest settlement to the ranch. Now, Antelope gets a lot of flack in the retellings of this story, and for some good reason. They end up being right but you almost don't want them to be, because as soon as these hippies wearing red, speaking Hindi, worshipping some Indian mystic showed up in a town that had fewer than 60 people in it, their reactions were in many cases openly hostile. The people of Antelope could be best described as people of the land. Without being too chauvinistic or holier than thou, they were conservatives. Especially in the early 80s, they didn't take kindly to what they saw as some satanic voodoo hoodoo cult setting up shop in their backyard. But to the detriment of the cult, 
They decided almost immediately to fight fire with fire. They gave no ground and began fighting every legal action possible, beefing up their numbers considerably and flying in every person they could so that they massively outnumbered the townsfolk in Antelope. When the people of Antelope started carrying guns around, they did too. Trucks full of foot soldiers, all dressed in red, drove around the road simply to look intimidating. It was a range war in all but name. But we're not quite there yet in our story. For now, the Sanyasins are getting things set up at the commune for the arrival of the Bhagwan. Buildings are constructed quickly with the use of modern tools and building materials, much to Rajneesh's delight, and acquired all kinds of nice things for him, including a fleet of 93 Rolls Royces that he drove by every day in, and a private jet at a private airstrip. That's another thing that irritated the locals, by the way, the desire for the Rajneeshis to incorporate their ranch into a city. You see, because of the early days of the Oregon Trail and settlement of the West, if you had 150 people in a town or more, those people could vote to incorporate as a city. This gave them the right to appoint officials, appoint law enforcement officers, draft statutes, do zoning and planning over land use, and decide who could and couldn't hold land or property in the city. So in 1982, the ranch incorporated as the city of Rajneeshpuram, Oregon. This wasn't the only civic action taken by the group. When the people of Antelope protested this, they started aggressively buying properties in the town through intimidation and ludicrous offers of money, basically saying to the people of Antelope, we're going to pay you $100,000 to leave, and if you don't leave, well, you don't want to know what will happen if you don't leave, so you should really just take the money and go. Via this tactic, they were able to take over the city council of Antelope itself by massively outnumbering the original inhabitants. A vote in May of 1982 to disincorporate the town of Antelope a last-ditch attempt by the originals to destroy their town rather than see it be taken over, failed. In 1984, it was renamed the Town of Rajneesh. Unfortunately, the Rajneeshis are not very inventive when it comes to naming things, as you probably guessed. This turned public opinion in the wider state of Oregon very quickly against the Rajneeshis. When it did seem like they were just an innocent religious group under persecution from some backwards hicks, many in the cities had either ignored them or were somewhat sympathetic to their cause. But by aggressively taking over the town of Antelope as well as incorporating their own city, they played directly into the image of them created by the people of Antelope as dangerous cultists bent on intimidation and silencing their critics. When they'd incorporated Rajneeshpuram, they could possibly have just let sleeping dogs lie, focused on fighting the planning commissions legally and doing their own thing. But when they took preemptive action by forcing locals out of Antelope and rigging local elections by quickly moving in huge numbers as voters, they became the exact thing that they were being accused of being. Their main opponent at this time was a group called the 1000 Friends of Oregon, a public interest group founded back in the 70s to deal with planning permission and city development. Their beef with the Rajneesh was that the city was being developed too quickly. The land wasn't being used properly and they were risking damaging the local ecosystem or creating negative externalities like soil erosion from the incredibly intense agriculture needed to feed what was up to 10,000 people living there. The highest number ever claimed was 4,000. We know we know for sure lived there via later statements was 7,000, but we think that the actual number was closer to 10,000 people in the city of Rajneeshpuram. And what a city it became! By 1983 it had... A fire and police department, restaurants, town halls, cinemas, shopping malls, a public transit system, a 4,000-foot airstrip, a sewage plant, a post office replete with a zip code, and a reservoir. All of this, by the way, had been zoned as agricultural land, so this was absolutely not up to code, as it were. This was another thing that increased suspicion on the Rajneeshis. They would consistently say one thing and then do another. No, we don't want to take over Antelope, you're just overreacting. 
Now let's just move a thousand people into a town with a population of 60 and occupy all but one position on the local council to spitefully prevent them from disincorporating even though we have a city. No, we don't want to build a mega city. This is just a peaceful commune. Now let's take land that we've had permission to use for farming and build a shopping mall, a police station, staffed by our followers, of course, and an airstrip on it. Victimless crimes, you might think, but still technically illegal and thus possibly worth drawing the ire of the planning councils of Oregon. Despite the rapid pace of construction, though, there were still more Rajneeshis than there was space in the commune, in spite of even more overcrowding. So many were stationed at a hotel in Portland that they'd bought out, nicknamed the Hotel Rajneesh. Quelle surprise. On the 29th of July, 1983, a bomb went off in the hotel. Stephen Pastor, a man who had converted to Islam and was part of a radical religious sect that saw the Rajneeshis as devil worshippers, was the one who'd done it. But many in the cult suspected that it had in fact been their enemies in wider Oregon, or Antelope specifically. This changed things, because despite the fact that nobody was killed in the attack, an open attack on the Rajneeshis in America had occurred, the exact thing that they'd aimed to leave behind in India. Ma'anan Sheila comes to the fore once again, as around this time Rajneesh had withdrawn even more. A later statement by Sheila claimed that this was because he'd become dangerously addicted to Valium and nitrous oxide, and now we spoke almost exclusively through her. It was her decision, then, to arm the Rajneeshis with as many weapons as she could find. This again riled up the people of Oregon by playing into the image that had been created, and Sheila knew as much in interviews with her at the time. Essentially, she argued, they had no choice. They'd come in peace, but the people of Oregon had forced them to become militant through their bigotry. I'll let you decide if that's an accurate depiction of events or not. Back when they'd first arrived, some local hunting clubs had started handing out Rajneesh-shaped targets, and churches gave out flyers denouncing them. It's not as though there was no threatening behaviour by the locals, as a point of order. But they began doing drills, tactical assault using battle rifles and submachine guns to train themselves into an effective fighting force. This caused no small degree of consternation with the wider population of Oregon, but as Rajneesh Puram was its own city, they could do whatever they liked. After all, they controlled the police force. Sheila did her own image no favours, and she aimed it that way. She actively cultivated the image of a no-nonsense bitch who wouldn't be intimidated by some yokels with guns, or anyone else for that matter. Which would be admirable, if you don't consider what happened next. Now, I said the cult wasn't doomsday, that's not entirely accurate. In 1984, Sheila announced that the cult predicted that a AIDS crisis would kill off two-thirds of humanity, and Rajneesh Puram would be a Noah's Ark, allowing the worthy to survive. Interestingly, this led to the widespread adoption of condoms in Rajneeshpuram, despite them not being recommended to stop AIDS because at the time the Reagan administration was still calling it the gay plague. A broken clock can be right twice a day. But all of this wasn't just made possible by radicals in red. Oh no, Serah, a massive legal machine was needed to grease these wheels and fight off continuous attempts by planning departments in Wasco County and Oregon State to intervene. At the peak of the Rajneeshpuram era, three main entities within the organization existed. The Ranch Church, or Rajneesh International Foundation, the Rajneesh Investment Corporation, through which the former was managed, and the Rajneesh Neo Sanyasin International Commune. The umbrella organization that oversaw all of these was Rajneesh Services International Limited, a company incorporated in the UK but based in Zurich in Switzerland. There were also smaller organizations such as their Travel Corporation, their Community Holdings, and their Modern Car Collection Trust, whose sole purpose was to acquire and rent Rolls Royces for the use of the Bhagwan. Things escalated again in 1984 with serious consequences. After failing to be awarded more planning permits to expand Rajneesh Param, the cult decided enough was enough. If they were going to continue their project, they would need control of all of Wasco County, perhaps all of the state of Oregon. 
They had three targets in the November 1984 county elections, two of the three county commissioner's seats and the office of the county sheriff. If they got these, there was nothing that anyone in Wasco County could do to stop them from running it like a micronation. To do this, they began a massive relocation program. They went as far afield as Texas and found every man-jack of homeless people they could. Drifters, hobos. They put them in red jumpsuits, gave them a hot meal and stuck them on a bus straight to Rajneeshpuram and gave them houses and jobs at the commune. Now, you might think this sounds noble. After all, despite the underhanded methods that they were actually using, they were helping people, right? Nobody else was. Well, not exactly. You see, the original inhabitants of Rajneeshpuram saw these new arrivals as spiritual inferiors, tools to be used and then discarded. No plans had been made to actually care for the drifters after the election, and no proper planning had been done for the massive spike in the population. Moreover, the original sannyasins had generally been wealthy from the middle classes of India and the West, whereas these arrivals were dirt-poor nobodies with no appreciation for the spiritual message of Rajneesh. A clear and persistent class divide arose, and caused a lot of problems within the commune as the new arrivals more or less had no interest in following Rajneesh beyond jobs, houses and food, much to the chagrin of those for whom this was a spiritual calling. Despite thousands more people arriving to vote for the Rajneeshis, quick moving by the Wasco County Electoral Commission invalidated almost all of these votes. Fair enough, I would say, as what they were doing was tantamount to voter fraud and election rigging. These people weren't residents of Wasco County, they were pawns. And as far as the inner circle of the Rajneeshis was concerned, once the election was over, they'd stick them on the next bus to anywhere and forget about them. When this failed, Sheila refused to give up. She authorised a plan to remove the voters who would oppose them on a more... permanent... basis. She had labs set up in the commune that would produce principally salmonella, the foodborne bacteria, in petri dishes, and then sent out agents to the surrounding area to intentionally infect fast food restaurants in and around the Dallas. Initially, a trial run of poisoning of food and water in the Dallas led to 751 people suffering some of the worst cases of severe food poisoning they ever had. When it became clear that even if that worked, they wouldn't win the election, the plan to use the biological agents on election day was shelved. But that trial run remains one of the largest bioterror attacks in US history. Later investigations revealed that not only was the salmonella the tip of a more dangerous biological iceberg, but also there had been other alleged dry runs in Salem, ahead of the Dallas. The official investigation at the time blamed poor food standards in the fast food industry, but Democrat Congressman Jim Weaver of Oregon didn't buy it. He'd been suspicious of Rajneeshis after having flashbacks to Jonestown, where you'll recall another congressman, Leo Ryan, was gunned down by murderous cultists after having been told, they're not hurting anybody. So in spite of accusations of being paranoid, Weaver decided to open his own investigation. In 1985, he gave a speech to the House of Representatives presenting compelling, if circumstantial, evidence that the Rajneeshis were to blame for a bioterror attack on the Dallas. His big thing had been environmentalism, so as soon as the Rajneeshis had violated their zoning laws, he'd been right on top of them. David Fronmeyer, Attorney General for Oregon, starts investigating the case more closely, opening his own formal investigation into what's going on at Rajneeshpuram. And what is going on at Rajneeshpuram? Things are starting to fall apart, and lines are being crossed within the commune. The divide between the original cultists and those press-ganged seems to be getting ever more stark, Sheila's relationship with the Bhagwan had grown ever more strained, too. She was fanatically devoted to him, but he disliked her attempts to monopolise his power. In one fraught meeting of the Inner Circle, he explicitly told her that it was his house, not hers, that was the centre of the commune. She was beginning to get very jealous regarding access to the Rajneesh, particularly from his personal doctor, who she blamed for exacerbating his drug problem, 
and others in the commune were looking to accrue power for themselves. For salmonella poisoning had led to another idea. What if, to make their vision of a world ravaged by AIDS come true, they sped up that process with another deadlier bio-attack? Due to events that would soon transpire, that didn't happen, but it was an idea tossed around as a plan among the inner circle. By unleashing a new global AIDS pandemic, bigger than the one already was, they would prove that Rajneesh was right. This is where the documentary Wild Wild Country falls down, by the way. In order to make the cult more sympathetic, they create a two-sides narrative. A lot of the worst practices of the cult get left out. Worse than what's already happened and will happen, that is. For instance, the testimonies of a number of ex-cult members indicate that their children were physically and sexually abused by high-ranking cult members, and that this was, at best, ignored, and at worst, tolerated. Apparently, all that training to externalize violent and sexual impulses led to spates of rapes, assaults, and other violent crimes occurring in Rajneeshpuram. But of course, because their law enforcement was made up entirely of Rajneeshis, and what passed for a local judiciary was as well, none of these crimes were ever investigated, let alone prosecuted. One account comes from a woman who will pop up later, Jane Stork, an Australian who was one of the cult's earliest fanatics and inner members, who revealed that her own children had been abused in Rajneeshpuram one of the things that made her disavow the cult later. On top of this, Rajneesh Puram was not self-sufficient. In spite of having massive amounts of farmland and all of those amenities, the massive population spikes meant that it had become increasingly difficult to maintain the facade of prosperity that had been so crucial in presenting their image. The use of condoms hadn't helped with everything. 87% of residents in Rajneesh Puram had some kind of sexually transmitted disease, and women who became pregnant were allegedly encouraged to abort their babies, lest the strain on the population grow even more. Jane Stork and her daughter were pressed into being sterilised at the behest of the Bhagwan. The final straw, and what would bring the increasingly precarious house of cards down, came in 1985. Charles Turner, US State Attorney of Portland, Oregon, had been appointed to launch a full-scale criminal investigation into what was happening in Rajneeshpuram. The charge? Immigration fraud. Remember that? You see, whilst many among the political bigwigs of Oregon had suspected that Rajneesh is of far worse things, the charges they could bring revolved around several massive violations of immigration law. For instance, a big number of the cult had entered into sham marriages between US citizens and non-US citizens to acquire green cards to allow settling in the commune. And remember how the Bhagwan himself came over three years ago now on a tourist visa for medical procedures? Well, he was now living in the US full-time and earning income as a religious preacher, a vocation which was not covered by his visa. The top dog himself was committing immigration fraud. But Sheila realised that whilst those charges could be fought indefinitely, if they ever gained a warrant to raid the commune, then they would find the bioweapons labs and the physical and sexual abuse and their stashes of weapons probable cause for even worse charges. So Sheila got desperate. She convened a meeting of those most loyal to her, of a Rajneesh himself, that is. Sally Ancroft, CFO of Rajneesh Param, Susan Hagen, the head of security, Catherine Jane Stork, who bought weapons and silencers and volunteered to carry out their plans, and Phyllis McCarthy, fourth in command of Rajneesh Puram, and co-conspirators Alma Potter, Carol Matthews, Phyllis Coldwell, and Richard Kevin Langford. What was the plan? to assassinate Charles Turner and Dave Fronmeyer, and other people would have attempts on their lives as well, but we'll get to that. Stork bought the weapons in the silences. Back then, she was known as Ma Shantibhadra, or Shanti B, and was considered one of Sheila's most loyal supporters. After acquiring false IDs and weapons in New York, Texas, and New Mexico, they headed up to Portland. Pretending to be a voter survey, they got access to Turner's personal address, and soon he was being surveilled. 
The plan was to shoot him in a parking garage after he finished work. No witnesses, good chance of getting away. They practiced the operation in drills. One would pretend to be a motorist with car troubles, and when he would come over to help, they'd pull out guns and gun him down. But they got cold feet. Sheila had ordered them to kill, and they seemed to have no qualms, but Carol Matthews, then known as Ma Prem Sari, decided that killing an innocent man, however much he threatened the commune's existence, was something she just couldn't do. Sheila had no opportunity to crack down on this insubordination because of trouble in paradise. Back at Rajneeshpuram, motions were being made by up-and-coming cultists to oust Sheila, and her attention was there. But remember the doctor, the one who Sheila disliked? Well, Jane Stork's role in this isn't over yet. During a mass prayer day celebration, Stork stabbed him in the back with a syringe full of adrenaline in an actual attempt to kill him. He survived, and for Stork, this was what broke the illusion. After being sterilized, having her children be abused physically and sexually, and almost murdering three people, the spell of the Bhagwan and Sheila was beginning to fade. It's worth noting, by the way, that Stork wasn't okay with the things that happened, merely that, until her involvement became too personal to ignore, she chalked a lot of it up to rumours spread by enemies of the commune, even the words of her own children, to a certain extent. September, 1985. Without any prior warning or notice, Sheila and her entire inner circle hop on a private jet in the middle of the night and leave for Europe. Their exact destination is uncertain, but now that Sheila has fallen out of favour with Rajneesh, her part in this game is over. For her followers, the future is even less certain. They have no money. Where will they go? What will they do? Rajneesh cuts his losses. Breaking his silence, he organises a press conference in which he accuses Sheila and her gang of myriad crimes, disavows any knowledge or involvement, and willingly invites the government to investigate. And who, boy howdy, do they investigate? When the ranch is swarming with FBI agents in days, every nook and cranny being bust open in search... Evidence is found that proves all charges. The bioterror attack, which could have killed thousands of people had it been any worse. Three counts at least of attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Wiretapping in the homes of Rajneesh and other members. And a litany of abuse cases, as well as the biggest immigration fraud case in the history of the United States. Jim Weaver ended up being vindicated. Back in February of that year, he had accused the Rajneeses of being behind the bio-attack and was mocked as a paranoid nutcase. Turns out he was right. Which is kind of a shame, because it lent credence to the idea that non-Western religions in the US were something to be treated with suspicion. On top of all of that, they had attempted to poison Mike Sullivan, the Jefferson County District Attorney, personally, add another attempted murder charge to the list. Rajneesh's defence was that because of his self-imposed silence and isolation, he didn't know about any of this until Sheila came forward and told him. I don't buy that for one hot second, because this was exactly the defence used back in the Pune ashram to cover the tracks on the drug smuggling and prostitution charges. Fool him once, shame on you. Fool him twice, the guy's covering for his own criminal activities. But despite the wiretapping by Sheila in the Bhagwan's house, there was no evidence to suggest that he actively was involved in her plans, merely that he would have known about them easily and strategically ignored them. Hundreds of hours of taped conversations revealed that the Bhagwan was far from ignorant of the goings-on within the commune. The worst of the recordings, by the way, has Rajneesh saying explicitly that if people had to die or be killed to make things work, so be it. And he literally paraphrased, Hitler had some good ideas. He gets misjudged a lot. Sheila and Rajneesh were made for each other. Both tried to sell the other out as part of a plea bargain, but whilst Rajneesh disavowed Sheila, she still saw him as a great, if misguided and fallen, man. Turns out there was another attempted murder charge that gets added to the list. Rajneesh's caretaker and paramour, Mayoga Vivek, 
She and the physician had been trying to get drugs to allow Rajneesh to peacefully end his own life, should the time come when he was too old or too sick to carry on, and this was what drove Sheila's attempted murders of the two. If she couldn't have the Bhagwan, no one could. On the 23rd of October 1985, a federal grand jury indicted on charges of conspiracy to evade immigration laws to begin with, but the Bhagwan's lawyers caught wind of it. When members of the cult began fearing that the National Guard was going to storm Rajneesh Puram, more leaked tapes revealed there was a plan to use women and children as human shields to allow the Bhagwan to escape. But it didn't come to that. As it turns out, he had his own get-out planned. Having tried to flee in a private Learjet that was eventually spotted and tailed by the USAF, he was caught whilst trying to refuel in North Carolina en route to Bermuda, outside of American jurisdiction. They found $58,000 in cash as well as 35 watches and bracelets worth over a million dollars as his belongings. And would you believe it, Rajneesh had no idea where he was flying to. His lawyers had deceived him, cursed devils. They just told him to board a plane in the middle of the night and attempt to circumvent a government investigation by escaping to Bermuda, but he didn't know any better. He took an Alford plea. It's where you don't admit guilt, but you do concede that if you were to go to trial, you would lose. For one count of having concealed intent to remain permanently in the United States at the time of his original visa application in 1981, and one count of having sannyasins conspire to go into sham marriages in order to attain US residency. He was given a sentence of 10 years suspended, to be served upon the failure of a five-year probation period, $400,000 in fines, and was never to return to the US within a period of five years at least. He went back to India, where he immediately denounced the United States as a corrupt country to the cheers and adoration of a massive crowd back home. What happened to Sheila and her lot? Well, they travelled around Germany for a bit undercover, but in 1986 Sheila was arrested in West Germany and extradited to the United States, along with her inner circle. She pled guilty to a smorgasbord of assault, conspiracy to commit assault, arson, immigration fraud, and attempted murder charges, was fined $470,000 and sentenced to three consecutive 20-year prison stays. After serving 39 months of a 20-year sentence, she was released on good behaviour in 1988 and emigrated to Switzerland. She got put up on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder of Charles Turner, but was tried in Switzerland, and her sentence was commuted to time served. The other conspirators weren't so lucky. Over the next decade, they'd be fighting extradition charges, be in and out of courts and prisons, serving between one or five years for their crimes. They didn't have the things that Sheila had in order to make a plea bargain, it seems. The extradition dispute took a lot of time. When Jane Stork finally faced charges in 2006, it was because she went voluntarily. Her son, you see, was dying of brain cancer back home in Australia. But in order to see him, she'd need to leave Germany and thus face arrest and a possible life sentence on two counts of attempted murder well proven. But she went. She voluntarily surrendered herself, at this point having fully renounced Rajneesh and everything she'd done in his name, and threw herself at the mercy of the court by fully admitting her guilt. Before sentencing, she was allowed to see her son, and managed to do so before he died. The verdict was returned. Five years, three months, commuted to time served, but on probation. The judge declared that by now, she had fully seen the errors of her ways, and had done everything in her power to atone for it. This is one of the most genuinely moving scenes in the documentary I mentioned earlier, seeing her begging for clemency in that position of such vulnerability, and having that mercy be granted in spite of the terrible things she'd done. Powerful stuff. Rajneesh continued to preach in India, having given most of his major charges the slip. He rebranded as Osho, and that branding lives today as Osho International, the successor organisation. He died on the 19th of January 1990 at the age of 58. 
Some alleged suspicious circumstances, but heart failure was the stated cause, and if the allegations of his copious drug use and stress of what he'd done are all true, you could well believe it. And the commune? Well, after the shit show that went down, the courts had a field day. No serious charges ever stuck to the settlement, but by 1987, when the dust had settled and the major players had moved out, the city was bankrupt and bereft of anything that would make you want to live there. Despite being valued at $28 million at its peak in 1985, it sold for auction at less than it was bought for, $4.5 million, in 1988, to the sole bidder, a Connecticut-based firm. After that, billionaire Dennis R. Washington bought the ranch to turn it into a park, but that didn't go well, so he donated it to Young Life in 1996, a Christian youth organization to be used for summer camps. They have their own controversial teachings. Despite being happy, clappy, and inclusive, LGBTQ plus members aren't allowed to hold leadership positions in the group, and their statements on the concept of sin were described by one fellow Christian theologian as, quote, They must not introduce the concept of Jesus and his grace until the students have been sufficiently convinced of their own depravity and allowed to stew in that depravity. End quote. If you look at the dynamic worship exercises they perform today, you could be mistaken in thinking that the esoteric religious sects never really left the Big Muddy Ranch. So that's it. The story of the city on the hill that never really was. Rajneesh Puram and its founder, the Bhagwan. Now, despite his preference for being called Osho in the latter days of his life, I have called him the Bhagwan or Rajneesh throughout this episode. This is because I believe that that move was a deliberate rebranding to avoid the consequences of his actions. That's point number one about the Rajneesh. He wasn't stupid, he wasn't ignorant. He was whip-smart, as his career as an academic and philosopher shows. He just knew how to construct a scapegoat and fob a blame for his misdeeds off onto someone else. But you wouldn't think so, given his modern legacy. Despite being massively anti-Gandhi, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh is considered in modern India to be one of the great moral philosophers of our times, alongside people like Gandhi. At a celebration in 2006 to mark the 75th anniversary of his birth, Indian singer Wasafu Dindagar said that Rajneesh's teachings were, quote, more pertinent in the current milieu than they ever were before, end quote. Nepal has 450,000 registered Rajneeshis if census data tells it true, and Osho International makes between 15 and 45 million dollars a year. He was a man that loved to be the centre of controversy. Right from the beginning, he courted public speculation about the things he did and didn't believe, and delighted in offending people. No such thing as bad publicity, eh? Modern analysis by religious and spiritual scholars outside of the mainstream has been more rough. He's been accused of cobbling together a personal philosophy that is ultimately based on exploitation for his own personal gain. His beliefs shifted and morphed to suit his audiences. As he gained more Western followers, he spiced up his talks with jokes and levity, rather than the serious, heavy-minded philosophical lectures that preceded them, because that appealed to that audience more. But I do think more or less he believed what he said, at least whatever he was saying at any one moment. He was a man who flitted between socialism and fascism, austerity and excess, before landing in a very weird hybrid of intense spirituality blended with excessive capitalism. His beliefs were weird and eclectic, but not insincere. He did use his beliefs to manipulate people, but it does seem that he just really did believe what he was preaching, and also really liked manipulating people and gouging them for money. Oh, and he was super problematic outside of all of that, by the way. He believed in some cases that eugenics was acceptable to limit overpopulation and prevent people being born deaf, blind, or developmentally disabled, and genetic modification to remove those things was good. Take that as you will. He was certainly charismatic, though, no doubt about that. Many sannyasins reported falling in love with him the first time they heard him speak, including Sheila. 
Among his personal flaws, though, narcissistic personality disorder has been suggested. He was totally obsessed with his image to a psychotic extent. He would always wear the finest finery, no threadbare robes, the newest Rolexes, the fastest Rolls Royces, only the best for the Bhagwan, the biggest house right in the middle of town. But more so than that, and more particular to the psychological disorder, he had delusions of grandeur and unlimited success. He couldn't fail because he was destined to succeed, and whenever he failed, it must be someone else's fault. He didn't know what was going on, he was misled, it wasn't his fault. He believed that he had become enlightened back in the 50s. Listeners familiar with the story of the Buddha will note that sitting under a tree in a garden was exactly how the Gautama Buddha became enlightened. He saw himself as a new Buddha and any threats to that pristine, immaculate image were met with severe threatening. Some have blamed those overindulgent grandparents. With no parental discipline, it encouraged him to chat back at every opportunity, and whilst this made him a fearsome debater, it also meant he had no capacity to accept when he'd made a mistake or done something wrong. There was always a reason, always a justification. I remember when I was learning to drive, when I was 16, and at one point I made a mistake in the lesson. The instructor told me what I'd done, and I tried to justify it, and he said simply, I could justify it if I liked, but it was still wrong. On a test, I would still fail. You don't always need to justify a mistake, and if you do, it's because you can't accept that failing is a thing that is natural. To me, that is the essence of the Bhagwan. And I knew people like that when I did debate in high school. People who just couldn't be wrong, who couldn't concede a point, who couldn't admit they'd made a mistake or said something that they didn't mean. There was always a reason, whether it made sense or not. Conceding was to them failure, and failure was not something they did. Stark contrast, then, with Jane Stork. She not only realised that what she'd done was wrong, but spent the rest of her life, she's still alive by the way, atoning for it. She wrote a book about her experiences and has talked candidly about the crimes she committed and her failings as both a parent in ignoring the abuse that happened to her own children and her as a person for the other things she did. Doesn't excuse it, of course, but interesting to contrast the two. When facing down life in prison on several counts of attempted murder, she was shown mercy. What do you think, listener? Did she deserve it? I'm inclined to say yes, because I believe that she really was repentant. Having seen her interviews, she never meant for any harm to befall anyone, especially not her children. She was just so brainwashed that she didn't believe it when she was being told it. And that's one of the things about this story, by the way. Nobody died that we know of. Small miracle. Had things gone differently, thousands and thousands of people would have died. Mass outbreaks of bioengineered diseases and AIDS pandemic. At least four direct murders plus a potential shootout between thousands of armed Rajneeshis and the US National Guard. But that didn't happen. Nobody died in the end, at least not like last time or the time before. Nobody was ritually murdered, nobody drank the Kool-Aid. So when we talk about this story, not only are a lot of the principal actors still alive, including those old farmers back in Antelope and Sheila herself, but most of the victims of the Rajneesh's cult are alive too, as is the cult. Although Ursham International would almost certainly strenuously object to being called a cult, and nowadays the watchful eye of the US and Indian governments hovers precariously over them, they are still the descendants of that other group. But we can't talk about the Bhagwan without talking about Sheila, the yang to his yin. She got off pretty light, given the scale of what she was planning and preparing to do, two years in federal prison for a slew of crimes, each of which alone could carry decades worth of sentences. Did she believe in the message of the Bhagwan? I'm going to say not entirely. What she believed was in the man himself. He could have said anything, and she would follow him because she was infatuated, blindly loyal whilst also frustrated by his spurning of her overtures of intimacy. She wanted him to love her like she loved him, and he just didn't. But he also liked manipulating her, having power over her, so he played her like a fiddle. Soon she was killing in his name, or 
more specifically attempting to kill in his name, and I believe that he knew her plans and was going to let her carry them out, because she was never anything more than a tool, a scapegoat. He would get the benefit of having his enemies assassinated, and when the time came, he could simply put the blame on her and let her go to jail for his own crimes. It's sort of sad, really, because I don't believe that Sheila ever got over that brainwashing like Jane Stork did. Listening to her current talks and opinions that she still espouses the philosophy of the Rajneesh while acknowledging that the man threw her under the bus and that he was a flawed individual, to be honest, it seems like she could never let go. So much of her identity revolved around him that when the pillar goes out, it turns out it's a load-bearing pillar. What can we learn about cults from the Rajneeshis? Well, they often do everything they can to get their way, and it's not always overtly illegal. They bust in thousands of homeless people from all over the US with promises of a hot meal in order to rig an election. They flagrantly violated zoning laws, immigration laws, laws on bioterrorism, but they also simply used existing legal chicanery to get their ways. Don't like the townsfolk nearby? Well, buy all of the properties you can and then send in thousands of zealots to hound these old-age pensioners into leaving their homes of nearly their whole lives. If they tried to stop you, rig every local election and create a kangaroo court where every four in five members are members of your commune. All of this caused a massive amount of unhappiness for everyone involved. The people of Antelope weren't happy. They were the ones being hounded out of their homes by a wealthy and highly aggressive cult. The Rajneeshis certainly weren't happy. They were for a time, some were. But it was an illusion, built on faking it till you make it, and they never made it. The people in the Dallas weren't happy when they got hit with biological warfare, never fun at the best of times, even if it's only a dangerous case of food poisoning. One big lesson we can learn from this case is that for those involved in these cults, appearance is everything. Framing is huge. The big question everyone has who hears this story is this. If the people of Oregon had been more accommodating, would the Rajneeshis have remained how they were at the beginning? Then again, how were they at the beginning? If the stories of the Pune Ashram are true, then they were still committing crimes well before they ever got to the US. But once they started to push back, they embraced the image of them that had been constructed. Sheila said as much in her television interviews. They thought it was a necessary reaction to forces from the outside. Unlike Manson or Jones, who had pretty clear sliding descents into madness, Sheila and the Bhagwan were always like that, and they were never mad in that sense. It was calculated, tactical with some goal in mind, targeted assassinations, biological attacks to sway an election, cooking the books so hard they could have opened a money laundering restaurant. They weren't always criminal in that sense, or rather they were always criminal. They never had qualms about getting their hands dirty to further their schemes, but those schemes weren't attempting to start cataclysmic race wars or bringing about a nuclear holocaust. It was just more Rolexes, more Rolls Royces, bigger houses, chasing that paper, baby. In terms of lessons to apply to contemporary cults, the one of appearances is a good lesson. A cult doesn't have to look like a cult to be one, in the sense that so much of the things that the Rajneeshis did were legal and political. But those who did engage in the more obviously culty activities did so with zero irony. Deniability right the way down to actively patrolling with dozens of armed red-clothed members down roads all called Rajneesh Street with little pictures of him and saying, Oh, here we go, the so-called tolerant opposition making us look like a cult. We're not a cult, we just worship the literal name of our leader who is a narcissistic megalomaniac with a penchant for fopping blame off onto toadies and an obsession with accumulating wealth and if you continue to impede our progress, we'll corrupt your political system and threaten to murder you. But we're not a cult. Sound familiar? A cynic could accuse me of cherry-picking, but much like with the eventual turn in Rajneeshpuram, I think it's intentional. They've started fitting the mould so well that there's no need for me to spin it. The spinning has been done. But there's one more lesson we can learn here. The value of atonement. My mind keeps coming back to Jane Stork. 
the woman who turned a blind eye to the abuse of her own children who planned out two assassination attempts and carried out a third, a woman who then decided that the remainder of her life would be spent attempting to undo the harm she'd caused. I didn't get a chance to read her book, Breaking the Spell, but the reviews and abstracts I've seen point to a story that's very much not just about her story of redemption, after the fact, but how she got into the mess in the first place. It explores how one becomes entwined with the cult, harmless interest turning to obsession, turning to fanatical devotion. It also looks at how one gets out of that. The term deprogramming has negative connotations due to cases where anti-cult activists have pulled an Una reverse card and kidnapped cult members in order to get them out. Exit counselling prefers a softer touch. Both are focused on getting people to give up cult beliefs. But nobody deprogrammed Stork. She changed her own mind. I think the moment that happened was when she tried to kill the Bhagwan's doctor, stabbing him with the needle of adrenaline. In that moment, it seems she realised that every accusation made against the cult was true. They had become exactly the thing that they had been accused of and had denied the entire time. For Stork, this was enough to get her out. Just like some of the doomsday cultists who believe that when Joe Biden got inaugurated as president, the rapture, or something like that, would happen. When it didn't, it caused a number to realise that the whole thing had been a lie the whole time, like a domino line. For others, though, it did the opposite. Being proved wrong, demonstrably, caused them to double down. This is because threats to one's worldview were treated by the brain as threats to the self in a physical way, and so the heels get dug in and people get further into their belief. It's a question that has no defined answer. How do you get someone out of a cult? Can they do it themselves? Jane Stork would suggest yes, but her turning point was a literal attempt to kill someone. Not even the abuse of her own children did it. Must it always go that far? Osho International denounced Stork's memoirs as unnecessarily reopening old wounds and accused her of being bitter at having been betrayed by Sheila, who is of course persona non grata in the organisation today. Make of that statement whatever you will. For now though, we close the book, for now at least, on Rajneesh Puram and the cult of the Bhagwan. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore portal, support us at Patreon at Demystified Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>